welcome. Legally Brief presents Changing Our Institutions. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer who works with private and public companies, educational institutions, and sports organizations to identify root causes, confront historic failures, and boldly implement change to our institutions. This podcast is for corporate change agents, disruptors, and mindset mavericks who are committed to making our institutions work better for themselves and the next generation. I want to remind you that while I hope you enjoy every episode in the series that we're doing on changing our institutions, the content of this programming is not a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes or information, please head on over to my website. There you'll find information and you can sign up for newsletters and you can learn more about me and my practice. I'm glad you're here. Let's get ready and let's talk and make some changes. Hello and welcome back to another episode. I'm so glad that you're here with me as we bring in the holiday season. At the time of this recording, we are just wrapping up November. Thanksgiving was a wonderful time for myself and my family, my brother and my sister and all of my nephews. We're in New Jersey. I celebrate that. Also, I celebrate today Team USA's win in the FIFA World Cup. They advance, as does England. So excited about that also. And in November, before the month is over, I had to take a moment. I've been following it all month long and celebrating Native American history, but I had to record and release an episode talking a little bit about just if I can amplify, discuss, and give some input into this most important culture that impacts me, impacts all of us as Americans, and to celebrate it, and to recognize that November is Native American History Month. On this episode, I'm going to talk about the Indian Child Welfare Act, the purpose or intent of that act, why it was necessary, and it's referred to as ICWA, I-C-W-A, what it was, was in response to. So why, why did we even need ICWA at that time in American history? And legal challenges to the law and some of those most recent cases. And then finally, the takeaways. I hope that you leave this episode with being more open about how institutions work, how you can make them better, even in federal, state, I don't care if it's an institution in your community. And also, I hope that you take away the willingness and the curiosity to ask questions, to befriend individuals outside of your circle and cultures, to learn about cultures that you may not know of. Let's dive right into what is the Indian Child Welfare Act? Well, it is an act that was implemented in 1978 by the United States Congress. It's a federal law that governs oversees the removal of Native American children from their families in custody, whether they're in custody, foster care, or adoption cases. The law gives tribal governments 
exclusive jurisdiction over children who reside on or live or domiciled on reservations. And then it also gives concurrent jurisdiction or presumptive, I should say presumptive jurisdiction over foster care placement proceedings that involve Native American children who do not. So it impacts children that both live on reservations, Native American children that live on reservations, and Native American children that do not. Why was it necessary to implement ICWA? What was going on in the world at the time? At pre, before, the pre-ICWA world, we'll call it, children were actually taken away forcibly, fraudulently by state and federal government agencies before 1978 and well into the 1980s by some reports. One example is a Native American mother becoming sick, having to be hospitalized and leaving her children, as is the custom, with extended family on the reservations and tribe members. Upon hospital workers and state agencies learning of this, they immediately went to the reservation, removed the children, and that oftentimes led to a horrible domino effect where you had children being placed outside of the reservations. At the time, you can have to imagine that women, families, Native Americans did not have full due process in these child custody proceedings. So you lost custody and your rights were terminated. That is just one story that is told by short documentary film called The Heart of Iqua. Becky's story. And Becky in this film or in this documentary was removed from her reservation, removed from the family, grandparents that she knew, was placed in a foster home with non-Native American families, was ended up in abuse, abusive situation, and not knowing anything about her culture when she could have stayed with her family. It's reported also during this time in this pre-equal world that as many as 35% of all Native American children were being removed, as I said before, forcibly. And sometimes they had intact Native American families with a family network of extended relatives. And they were removed forcibly and placed in predominantly non-Native homes where the children had no contact, no understanding of their Native American culture. So then when this act was put in place in 1978, it was done to quell and stop that disproportionately high rate of forced removal of these Native American children from their traditional homes and their cultures. In some cases, it's reported that even the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which was a federal governmental agency, had worked with state agencies, so the local agencies, to pay for the removal of Native American children and their placement away from their culture and their religion. 85% of that number that I mentioned before were moved and were placed outside of the community, even when there were willing and able Native American family members available for that placement. So what is the purpose then and why was ICWA made law. The purpose of the act, according to the U.S. Department of Interior, was to protect the best interest of Indian children and to promote the stability and security of Indian tribes and families. And it was put into place, the purpose of it was to set a minimum federal standard for the removal. So if you're going to remove Indian children and place them outside of the reservation, outside of their home, their culture, away from their religion, 
this is the minimum standard that courts, that federal and state agencies should look to. And you can find the act at 25 USC 1902. So ICWA provided guidance to states when they were handling Native American children where there's allegations of child abuse or neglect, or maybe there was an adoption that was going to take place involving the children. It set those standards for handling those cases because the U.S. government, those in the government that wanted to be proactive, that were progressive, they wanted to stop this removal of some reports as between 1941 and 1967, removal of one in three Indian children by force or fraud from their families. That's what the purpose of the act, and that was the intent of the act. During the hearings leading up to the enactment, some congressional testimony documented the devastating impact that these forced removal had on Native American families and their tribes. And that is why then it was implemented to promote stability and security of Native American of the tribes and these families. So we know what the act is. We know what the world looked like before 1978, when we're dealing just in this, for purposes of this discussion, the pre-Iqua world and what the act was in response to. Let's turn now to talk a little bit about the legal challenges, because as is the case, if you have a law that's implemented, you may now have a situation where there's going to be legal challenges. So let's fast forward a little bit. There's the enactment of ICWA. It's the law in 1978. In October of 2018, Federal District Court Judge Reed O'Connor, in a case challenging the act, struck down parts of ICWA, finding it to be unconstitutional. And this judge claimed or found that the act mandated racial preference. You will find similar challenges and striking down of laws similar to ICWA, that are written and become laws because they address some type of institutional wrong, some systemic wrong, some moral value that's been violated and impacts a group or a community of individuals. In this case of ICWA, Native American cultures, when we think about African Americans, or even if we think about Chinese American or Korean Americans, similar laws were put in place to address grievances to remediate harm that was done because of prejudices, longstanding prejudices. And so you'll have these challenges that came about. You have challenges to affirmative action as you do. And as we see here with the 2018 case that challenged ICWA. And so this judge found that it mandated racial preference. That's the argument that's used sometimes with instances of affirmative action or even the Voting Rights Acts that it's unconstitutional. However, the Federal Court of Appeals, the U.S. Court of Appeals, reversed Judge O'Connor, stayed that holding that that prior ruling violated tribal sovereignty. And then you have a court ruling that came about and said, look, ICWA does not violate equal protection. Well, does that case, so that's in 2018, 2019, that's not the final challenge to ICWA. So let's set the stage then for a more recent courtroom battle. 
that challenged this congressional legislation meant to protect American Indian children. And this is happening. It happens. It starts to come about the case that finally is heard in November of this year. It grows out of a situation from 2017. But before I talk about the details of that case, I find it interesting if we take a pull back a little bit and look at some laws that are being challenged recently. If you look at Roe v. Wade, which turned 50, Title IX, which turned 50, ICWA is over 40 years old. These laws were all put into place in the 1970s to address, remediate harms that were done. And they sought to expand and to make our democracy more inclusive. They sought to recognize whether it's a family's right to choose, a woman's right or sovereignty over her body, whether it's Title IX, which expanded the rights of women and girls in educational settings. And now with the challenges to ICWA, which expanded the rights and recognized the full humanity of Native American children and directly addressed wrongs that were done to those children. Now, so these laws are being challenged and coming before a more conservative U.S. Supreme Court. So that's a little bit about the backdrop or the stage that the case involving ICWA is coming before the court. And this case, as I said, starts in 2017 involving several couples, and these cases will be eventually consolidated before they were heard on November of this month. But one plaintiff in that case is Jennifer and Chad Brackeen. They are a white couple from Fort Worth, Texas, who, spoiler alert, they did adopt a Native American child, but that was not without some pushback from locals within the Navajo Nation who sought to have the child whom the family had fostered, a little boy that the Brackeens had fostered and sought to adopt. The Navajo Nation, they stepped in saying that they had found a Arizona tribal couple that they wanted to place the boy. So that case with the little boy eventually worked out where the family, the couple, was allowed to adopt the male child. However, their story takes a little bit of a twist when it was learned that the boy, the Native American little boy, he had a sister, a half-sister, and Brackeen's sought to also adopt the sister. And there was pushback again from tribal leaders saying that this shouldn't happen. And or there was a couple of arguments that the sister now, there should be kind of safeguards put in place to ensure that the sister had spent summers among the local tribe, was informed about her heritage. And just basically there was a real residence on the part of the local tribal nation for now the girl to be adopted. So the Brookings, might be saying their name wrong, together with other families, sought then now to challenge ICWA. And the cases were consolidated and the disputes came before the Supreme Court under 
the name Holland versus Bacreen. And there was a total of four cases and they were filed in federal court, first in federal court in Texas. And so Texas and a total of seven individuals now are bringing this case. Three of the individuals, three couples that were part of the plaintiffs in the case are not Native Americans. And they are either they sought to adopt or foster children with Native American ancestry. Now, joining in on the other side or adverse to the Brackeens and these couples who are seeking to adopt or foster Native American children are the federal government for tribes are also joined in to defend the law. And really at the heart of it, the plaintiffs are seeking to hold ICWA as unconstitutional. So on one side, you have the state of Texas and the individual plaintiffs. One of the arguments that they are insisting is that ICWA draws a distinction between Native American children and their would-be adoptive parents based on race. And they're saying that the law, therefore, is prejudicial and that it treats Indian children and parents and potential adoptive families differently from non-Indians and that they're doing this, that the law is meant to, this is the argument, one of the arguments advanced by the plaintiffs, that the law is put in place in order to shore up tribal numbers. Now, in support of the law, Native American tribes state that it's one of the most important pieces of federal Indian legislation ever enacted and warned that ruling, overruling this law, would work to profoundly harm Indian children and the tribes. You also have the tribe reiterates and they remind the court that the treatment of Native American children, when you talk about the nuances of how federal laws and federal jurisdiction over American tribes. So one of their arguments is that tribes and the Native American children have long been under the jurisdiction of tribes, tribal nations, and the federal government. And ICWA merely provides guidance or rules for federal courts when you have cases of fostering or adoptive or custody that involve Native American children. So again, the argument is that ICWA is necessary because it supplies courts, it supplies federal state agencies with minimum standards that these individuals should look at. So let's take a scenario, for example, you have a case of foster care that's coming before a state agency, a state court, maybe it's a surrogate's court, and the judge doing its homework and due diligence as they do, or maybe it's one of the case workers in the case says, informs the court that the child before the court is of Native American ancestry. Now that should immediately then trigger the laws and the minimum standards codified in ICWA. And then the court, the state agencies will say, let's look at these standards and let's follow these standards when we're thinking about who to place a child, where to place a child. It doesn't exclusively say you have to only place a Native American child with a Native American family or tribal family. It merely says, consider these standards because we want to, if possible, keep Native American children within fit, safe tribal environments. 
of course, you have to look to the best interests of the child and where by no means does the law ever discuss, contemplate putting a Native American child with an Indian family that's not safe or fit or the best interest of the child. So as we close out this discussion, this understanding of the Indian Child Welfare Act, it's just a few things to take away. As it stands right now, the case has been argued. It's before the Supreme Court. It's still a law. It's still federal law. It has not been overturned. It was put in place to address unique set of standards. Maybe it wasn't so unique, as I said, as I talked about before, you know, the pre-equal world was really one that was exclusive, restrictive, and not diverse in its thinking, in its understanding of the needs of individuals. So this law was put into place to address those needs, to address the needs of Indian children. And it has been affirmed and reaffirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court for over 200 years. But again, like Roe v. Wade, like many Title IX cases, we see that it is coming before a more conservative U.S. Supreme Court. So this is a case to watch and to see how this challenge goes. It's to also remember another takeaway that ICWA does not, when you look at this law, when you look at the legislation, when you look at the intent and the purpose that we talked about before at the top of the episode, it's not meant to discriminate against non-Indian families, non-Native American families. It doesn't ignore the best interests of the child, but it was merely designed to promote these needs of Indian children. And what I found interesting in preparing for this episode is that here's a takeaway for you, that 18 national child welfare agencies consider the Indian Child Welfare Act to not only be good practice for Native American children, but experts and practitioners, attorneys, child welfare practitioners have found that the principles found in ICWA are a gold standard for child welfare that we should implement for all children when they come into court, when they're in court because of or they're being considered for placement. We should look to ICWA as the gold standard for child welfare for all of our children. I enjoyed learning more about ICWA. I'm always curious when I think about our institutions, how they operate and what they do, the failings, the ways that they try to remediate. I think it, from my understanding, ICWA is necessary. You're going to have abuses part of expanding our community, part of making systems and processes work better, are to acknowledge past wrongdoing and to enact strong legislation to support it. Maybe you have to address even shortcomings in legislation, but ICWA did a good job thus far in addressing. There's a long way to go We know when we deal with the history of Native American communities, this is just one of many ways that Congress has done to address those past wrongdoings. I also want to say, if you continue to be curious and want to learn more about Native American history, please listen to this podcast entitled Buffy. It's about the one of the Native Emmy award-winning 
Native American singers, artists, not only singers, artists, writers, producers. It's called Buffy. I'm going to see if I can just find it for you right here so I can, I listen to it from beginning to end. Yes, here it goes. It's Buffy. And maybe I'll even, I'll put a link to it. It's the title of it. It's Buffy St. Marie, who is known as the most celebrated musician ever. So take a listen to that. It's hosted by Fallon Johnson. I really enjoyed that. And you'll hear uh, just a fabulous story. If you love stories as much as I do, you'll want to also listen to that podcast. So as always, happy start of the holiday season. I'll be back next week talking to you about investigations, internal investigations, but then also we'll take a break as I do during the holiday season to get a little bit more personal, talk about how some stories about celebrating the holidays. There's so many to celebrate. I look forward to recording those and releasing those over December. And until next time, be well and enjoy the holidays. All information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.